0: welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels,
1: a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this very special episode, we're interviewing Joel Collins, who is the production designer on the His Dark Materials TV series. This episode
0: contains spoilers for the Amber Spyglass book and the TV series. So if you've not read or watched both, please come back when you're all caught up.
1: good and very excited to have another interview for everybody to listen to
0: honestly we're in interview city right now we're doing so many interviews so many interviews
1: amazing i'm loving it
0: (laughs) yeah me too me too in this episode we're talking to production designer Joel collins for the second time you may remember him he came on after season two and now Mm -hmm. he's here to talk about season three and we were discussing what we'd really love to do, and hopefully we can make this happen, is get Russell and Joel together to do a, a retrospective on three seasons. And we know they're both up for it, so let's do it.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, we've had so much fun talking to both Russ and Joel recently, so mm-hmm. it would be great to get them together for a proper chat. And if you have not listened to our interview with Joel Collins about season two, go listen to that, check it out. There's some loads of great Easter eggs, information, mm-hmm. all about how they built the first two series. So yeah, amazing. And then you can come back and listen to all of this awesome information about season three. Yes, yes. It was really lovely to talk to Joel. He
0: is such a talented man with such a excellent view of the entirety of all the seasons. Like when you speak to him and you hear his visions and what they what they spoke about and what they originally designed and what they went with and why they did it he's like i wish i had a brain like that mm-hmm. the
1: thought behind every single detail that like if you see something you think oh that's random you can ask joel and he will tell you the thought process behind the entire thing because yeah. i can tell you it is meticulously thought out yeah amazing 100
0: percent. 100 percent. we won't keep you that long we'll let you Get into this interview, and we hope you enjoy it because we bloody loved it. Yeah, let's take it away. Let's do the interview. (laughs) Hi, Joel. Thank you so much for joining us again. Hi,
1: Joel.
2: Lovely to see you again.
0: Yes, absolutely. We are so excited to talk to you about season three because it's such a huge, huge season. (laughs) I mean, first things first, I guess, now that it's all wrapped and it's done how how does it feel to be at the end of such a long journey uh
2: i think i think it's um uh, a com- it, it was it was a weird experience to finish this after what's almost what is around six years worth of work and i think the um, the the physical and emotional and creative investment is 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 so um it's so vast that you kind of think to yourself it'll never end and so it has been an interesting for the group of us that have been on it for that long it's been a kind of weird um kind of looking around you know everyone's busy uh luckily um and uh and and it's not about that it's it's more that um we cared so passionately and then suddenly we're like right well here we go let's see what the world think you know um so yeah it's odd
1: with um, the unusual way in which this uh, series has been filmed, we've had the first two seasons filmed so close together and released quite close together, and then we've had this big break. How was that process for you in the run-up to this third season, knowing that you're coming to the end of the series, it was going to be the last one, and having had that kind of time to breathe on it a little bit, well, more so than yeah. you did between seasons um, one and two?
2: I don't know, I don't know about the, um, the breathing. I think what we didn't have was a time to breathe between seasons one and two. At all, um, we were literally kind of running from both. Both we were we were really trying to figure the show out, really trying to work out how we got the results we needed in VFX, which had a long tail to them. In, pardon the pun. And then and then we and then we were trying to get straight into season two while dealing with the effects and the impacts and the kind of like quality completion of season one. Um, and we always knew that there would be this, this, this break because the show had these two seasons to go and we had another season to, uh, to write. Obviously, the first two seasons, there was a lot riding on, on us making the first two seasons as to whether, you know, that we, we were going to be lucky enough to carry on, and, and we were. Um, and and ultimately, um, uh, there was a lot to do. There was a lot of thinking to do. There was a lot of post-production on season uh, two to do while the writing and the visual development happened. Uh, and all of that kind of fell within that year of 2020. Um, so we were really busy completing season two and trying to f- push and form and kind of create and mould season three.
0: Yes. Yes. So before you started working on season three, such a big season, so many new characters, new locations, new things... What were you most excited to get into before you started working on it?
2: Um, I think I was most excited about the Malefa because it was the thing that everyone was a bit kind of nervous about. So I thought, well, if we, can, if we can feel confident and it was always the things that we thought were easy were going to be the really, really complicated things to do and the things that we thought were really hard, they would get such an attention paid that they would end up being the thing that you kind of go, well, I kind of get that now. And then you'd look around and go, yeah, but we all thought that was easy. That isn't. And so, uh, you, you know, having learned that uh, the hard way, I knew that if we could get – basically, we, I did a real sp- kind of splatter, as it were, of all of the worlds and all the ideas, uh, tried everything. We did a, what's called a um, – a, like a, um, it's a kind of a way of seeing everything in its, in its um, colours, as it were, like you do on an animation – and uh, and uh, what we worked out is how dark the whole of season three might be i mean physically dark you know if you think about it in the book as asriel's in a basalt tower um in an adamantine um all these kind of really quite dark caves everywhere and things like that so we were like okay let's pull back let's uh, let's let's keep an open mind let's creatively think uh, jane was eager that there's there's hope as well as the challenges of the of the of the season there's also hope in the season that as fights this war but has hope and that um uh, where love needs to be love could sit comfortably without being drowned out by darkness um and um and so there's a lot of kind of um, in the color script there was some pushing and pulling uh so it, all of that was happening at the same time as well as the malefa which was like let's do it uh we tried crazy things and weird things and you know Odd structures and, like, you know, wheels on claws and um, uh, and I'd say one of the key things to the Malefa was how do we how do we make it uh, a creature character that can talk and communicate and, um, and and communicate the way it needs to to the audience without pushing them away because it's an alien or so alien that you're kind of feeling uncomfortable watching it. And so when you read the book, you see all these cues as to what it could be. And then when you actually come to putting that all together, you're like, okay, if we did that bit, it might push people away, but we can do this bit. So there was a, there was a lot of uh, trial and error. Um, and, uh, and it was a, it was a big, uh, as Jane Tranta likes to call the banana skin, uh, that we could have slipped over. And I'd like to think we kind of, you know, triumphantly climbed over it. Um, but, you know, that's for the audience to tell us. Um, and that was a fun thing to solve. Everything was fun, but like that one, was uh, was a fun one to get out of the way. So we all felt like, oh, I think this is good now. And these these characters and creatures for Russell to be able to do his work, uh, and for his team to bring those characters to life because they embody actor. They embody, you know, a performance that is another actor. Uh, that's hugely. It's like forming. It's like giving birth to a character that then has to perform. And so Russell's work has to go into this de- depth that needs time. So actually the sooner we got that done, the better for him to really understand its its performance needs. If that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of the Malefa, when we spoke to Russell, he was talking about how there were so many so many things, like so many hidden things within the series that we might not necessarily see. And he mentioned that the blue on the Malefa that it was your idea that that was when they were like rubbing against the trees that it would make them blue if that's what he said and that was really interesting to me and I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on the, that kind of process.
2: Well the initial thought was actually that they, they the older they got the more blue uh, it wasn't it's more of an iridescence it's like a kind of it's basically the colorations of, of the, the northern lights and the northern lights is where the veils between the earth between the worlds are thinnest. And the northern Lights colorations sit somewhere into the, the the strands of the worlds. When the knife cuts, it plays a part on the kind of the edge of the blade of the subtle knife, and also the blades that in the bolvanger and the blade we put into the magisterium. And it's it's a kind of uh, plays a part that that colorway that coloration we, we lent into in a very subtle way uh, that and it played a part of. Denoting something that had, or could impact, or in had impacted dust, or had an interaction with, you know, the dust of the worlds, and obviously with the malefa being connected, um, the older they got, uh, the more dust uh, they attracted, and uh, and well, basically, so their their coloration would change, and the the dust would, you know, that 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 would be denote kind of denoting a. a, a uh an, an amount of dust that, that they had um interacted with i
1: love that i love the the color the, the color story that weaves through that's lovely
2: and it's there it's there as a kind of um it's there quite subtly that the angels have got this kind of slight petroly feel it's, it's a very uh you, you go too far in any one direction with this kind of color way and it, it kind of again it goes a bit sci-fi fantasy we're in fantasy but you go too far and it's distracting so um, so it's all very subtle.
1: There's uh, so much new and exciting creature design. We were just discussing the malefas in this season. I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about one of the other really exciting new creatures that we perhaps see quite a different take from what we get in the books, which is uh, quite a traditional description. Uh, your take on the harpies was really interesting, and I'd love to hear about the design process for those.
2: Um, well, again, uh, we were treading the line of um the what the heart what the harpy can be in mythology which is a half woman half bird um and in itself um we tried that uh, we tried something beautiful that was disgusting when you got close we tried these kind of elegant things that become rotten and skeletal um, and it was quite hard, actually, because we we found that uh, with each different version of um, Harpy design we tried, it it would impact you differently. And actually, what we really needed was um, something quite terrifying that, in itself, could change and or um, not stay terrifying in the way it is. And and actually, we we lent more into this kind of decrepit, peeling skin. Kind of evil uh, bird, char- humanoid-ish bird character, um, but it but but it was trial and error really, and and again, all of these things are really about how you feel when you put them together. Um, we, I, I'm I'm a firm believer in the failure of, of your ideas, you know. So so that never once on Dark Materials did we just do something and went that's it. aren't we genius. That's brilliant. It was it was it was what you think, what you see in the book, what you read. What you've seen in mythology, we try everything, uh, and then and then this one, um, I think, again, like I've, I've I haven't seen all of the kind of like takes because everybody sees these characters differently in their heads. Um, but what we needed was to push the boundaries of what was probably a, a real, s- s- quite scary, a malevolent character that could in itself have more to it than than meets the eye.
1: I really like that. There is something about the Harpy's faces that is so monstrous. And then there is, I feel like you did the same thing. The show's done it really successfully with multiple characters with the monkey being so evil at the start and you get this little sympathy seeping through and seeping in. The same with the, with the harpies' faces, because it goes from monstrous to like, oh, but it's just an old turtle bird, kind of, <laughs> by the end of it, which is... I'm sorry if that was a terrible description of your very lovingly built character. No, but, no. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, but I think that's right. I think that that you there's a kind of sweet spot where you, where you kind of... You know the story. People who know the story know the story. People who don't, don't know what's coming in characters. They don't know what... Mrs Coulter's going to become throughout the seasons or the monkey and they don't know what the harpies are and what they'll be to the to the people in land of the dead. So so I think the 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 complex thing of 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 treating it uh, uh, as if it's new to the people who don't know but also paying complete respect to the material and the people who do know. So it's it's an eternal kind of thing that we had to face, which is there's a whole group of people who know this story intimately and have an idea of what it is and then there's a whole load of people who, who need to be able to enjoy the story and have no idea what it is but are going to watch it and need to just enjoy it. And we needed to constantly be like working and navigating between those those two, those two areas, you know.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, while, while we're on the harpies it, it seems apt to move into the realm of The Land of the Dead and the design of that set and the production design of that because it was really, we've talked about it a lot, how beautiful it was how different it was um, and also with the suburbs of the dead as well, with the waiting room feel to that, uh, we'd love to ask you what the process was for those two particular areas. Well the suburb of the
2: dead, land of the dead, I had a very simple I put a very simple principle in place and actually a lot of what we do is uh, a lot of what I do is keep it as simple as possible because otherwise with such dense complex storytelling and material if you want to go dense around it you're you're risking again you're risking looting, losing losing people's interest they'll be too interested in that not in that so um what i th- thought was a potentially an interesting idea was to treat it a bit like being recycled and to be uh, being funneled through this very um industrial way of basically taking the dead and placing them into their detritus. So you're, you're, you're funneled through, you're sorted, as it were, uh, through the suburb of the dead uh, into, the, into this huge fa- factory. And, um, and once in that factory, you're, you're ass- assorted in the factory, you're pushed out into this landfill of land of the dead. And, and everything you ever lived with, everything you ever made a mess of, everything every thing you bought is around you, compacted in this rock-like dirt, and you can't escape it for eternity. So it's not rock. Every bit of those walls is items. The entirety, if you were to stand there, you would see hats and scarves and coats and doors and things... The entire Land of the Dead is made of of compressed crap.
1: I really love that. I noticed it was a comment I made as we were watching the series that like this season in particular, some of the sets feel very like kind of theatrically minded almost. So like a lot of the way that um Azrael's camp is built up with the gorgeous tents and the drapery and stuff, and then in the land of the dead with the uh, for lack of a better word, like garbage piles. They feel very much like something you could take a tiny vignette of and pop it on a stage in a theatre production and it would, like, work perfectly as well. And I wondered if any of those sensibilities were things that you considered when you were thinking about the construction of these pieces.
2: Well, what you want. I mean, if you track back, we've got this plausible reality that we fought for all the way through the show. You know, um, uh, I don't know if you guys ever visited, but but on season two with Cittagarty, it was a huge set. And it felt like a real place, obviously. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the team did an amazing job and we we loved making it because it was a real village we built. And in that had this very un-theatrical sense to it. It was organised to shots, but it wasn't related in any way to a, a sense of other um because it was other in its design it was it was full of a it was a town and where people went like oxford was at oxford but a different one or london was london but a different one all of this stuff meant that it had to sit within this kind of real deep kind of place where you didn't think it was something was weird something was off as Reel's camp how do you make something feel like it's got hope um interesting question how do you make an army camp not feel when you walk go through it like you're you like you're in the mud and everyone there's going to die how do you give that to the audience how do you how do you create an atmosphere of hope in a space and i would say i'm not sure about theater but i think what what what's interesting is that there's something about it that doesn't make you go like oh god like they're in war, you know it makes it feel like there's a community here that are fighting for the same cause um, and um, and that was kind of intentional and and actually weirdly, yeah, the whole the whole the, the, the camp in land of the dead I mean it's it's a hard one if you don't understand what's around you. If you think there are rocks around you, then you'd wonder how come people have got all these fabrics and other things. but actually it's all about understanding what's around them. They've literally just pulled stuff out of the walls and try to remember what it was like to live. And they've made homes, but their memories fade the longer they're there. So it's like having Alzheimer's, and, and they're left with this kind of loss lo- loss of understanding of how they lived. But they have items and objects they cling on to or carry and, um, and covet or or remind them, but they don't know what the memory was, you know. It's a very heartbreaking thing when you read the book and when you... So, and there, and actually, in the book, it's it's got a sense of ancient theatre about it, like broil, like it feels like a broiled town. It feels everything in the suburb of the dead is very different. It's like a dirty, muddy uh, place, like dreamlike state. So I, I, I don't know. It's a hard one to say, because uh, theatre and set design is a complicated thing, uh, because it's. It's, um, it means you see it. It means you understand what it It means. You see what you're seeing, if that makes sense. Cause in theater, you see it on a stage. Um, but at the same time there was, and there was always going to be something theatrical about the land of the dead, because actually, why would they live in a cave? Why would they be in caves? And if they did live in caves, what do they do? Just sit on rocks. So if you imagine it just as it's pure reality, um, there'd be nothing there um what i mean is if you if, if its reality was just rock and earth like the underneath of the world the world um then um then there would be nothing for them to hold no lighting for them to use no places for them to hide or sit or feel scared or identify with their own world and obviously because of the nature of uh, of the idea which was that they were living within their own detritus they kind of Made these spaces. Uh, it's, it, it was a weird place to be, I must admit. For the crew, they found it very weird. Um, people went very like people. People found it very interesting, but also I think found it very hard to to work in because it was just yeah. what it was. It felt like you're in Land of the yeah, Dead. I can
0: imagine. So, moving on to I guess brighter areas of of the season have obviously our three hero props throughout the season and this season we met the spyglass which is very very different to how it's described in the books and we'd love to hear um the process of that especially with it being something that is found by mary rather than made like it is in the books
2: so we obviously made spyglasses uh, early on we made, we found uh, Amber lenses and um, we found other types of things that she could have used as lenses. And we tried everything from uh, something she had in her bag, like a tube or, you know, toothpaste tube, like not toothpaste, but you know, the tube you put your toothbrush in. Yes. Like uh, we we tried that, we tried bamboo uh, and wood. And ultimately um, we tried, um, you know, to make kind of what is like a, you know, a thing, like a spyglass, like a, like a, like a um, uh, binocular kind of, you know, whatever it is, you know, like so what, what, you, what you'd imagine it, it is. And actually it felt um, so forced uh, once she had done that work, no matter what we did, it either felt a bit cartoon because it was like a pink toothpaste tube or a blue toothpaste tube or something. With like lenses crammed on the ends or it felt um a bit ver- a bit um like it was from some festival you know um and and ultimately our kind of a, a, a attempt to just fight for a sense of plausibility um made us pair it right back to the fact that the tree would create these huge Lumps of amber inside the tree, you probably can't see it, but there's big drops and huge clumps of amber that have like formed. And ultimately, they would drop into the pool, which became Eden for Will and Lyra. And above, if you look in the first shot, you see the trees above. And obviously, she, she goes and she finds these things. And by, by chance, she rubs the oil on, onto it and, and just gets this kind of reaction where through it, she sees the dust. And then obviously it's like, how do I, you know, how do I, how do I see this? How do I get, get a better view? Uh, and tries her way round till she finds a, a, a lens, as it were, uh, that, that gives her the best way of seeing it. Um, I, it's a complicated, uh, it was a complicated journey, the Spyglass, because an iconic thing. Uh, but hey, you know, like we took a round elithiometer and kind of made it square. So we're not, New to trying things out in the story, um, and usually we, you know, and uh, we always did them uh, with our eyes open. Uh, but this was, um, yeah, it was. It wasn't done without all of the kind of due diligence. But really, what it was was, what's the what's the story about? Well, it's about her um, finding out that she can see what the see, she can understand what the earth, what's happening to the earth, their earth. And uh, and all of that, and that was what the that was the kind of driving point of of where she was headed with it. So I don't know how did that feel to you guys? Was it unusual? Was it against what you thought was coming?
0: No, it felt. I guess it felt right in a sense that uh, she it would be something that she found. I remember we spoke to Simone at Hair Festival, um, and she told us there that it's going to be a, it was going to be a lot different than what we thought it was going to be. So we were like. Braced for something different but I think I honestly think it makes sense in the story and to hear you explain it um also I guess for like time as well we had that beautiful montage of Mary when she's learning the malefa language and how would we have seen her then build the spyglass as well yeah I, I for me it worked I don't know about you rich
1: no I agree I think for the way that we see the Malefa society, living is very different again to in the books we've not got little mud huts and what looks like you would expect some quite human civilization to look which we see in the books and the way they have like industry and fishing and stuff we see much a much more symbiotic relationship with the trees in the series which I really love because I think it puts that emphasis on the importance of the trees and the dust so her finding the spyglass organically feels like it fits in with that telling of the malefist society I think more so than what we get in the books, if that makes sense.
2: Um, yeah. Well, uh, what, what's interesting is in the book, obviously there is a lot of basket weaving and rope weaving, and but actually, if you watch Avatar, you know they all live in trees and they've woven their homes and all that stuff. They've taken his idea, <laughs> and ultimately, we're, we're you know we don't want to we're not going to compete with another with a with a movie, um, <laughs> but basically, you know, um, we don't have time to. Uh, we didn't have i don't think we we really had time in some ways to tell that story you know uh the there was there's so much exposition so much storytelling going on in such a a complicated um um book that that basically we had to really choose how we told the story so uh, we, we did also go through we, again we've got drawings of basket weaving and how they would do it and the way they would do crafts and the crafts they would do and the way that they, they could have sat in beds that were woven but what we worked out is if we didn't show them doing it it wouldn't make sense them having it um and everything is is all about uh kind of what you show uh, and how you show it um and for us to succeed would be not to do stuff which would make the audience go like hang on you know, I mean, there's a few moments, you know, she does climb the tree and we figured out the way she climbs the tree, but it's quite amazing that she can do it. And, uh, and actually there was, we actually had some own climb thing and, you know, like, but, but really we tried to, we, we, we always tried to kind of work quite hard to keep it grounded. And like I say, if we, if we knew they did a lot of weaving and they'd taken all of the ropes around the tree and woven them up, but we never saw them do any of it. We would just think, how come they do this? um and and again if we ended up with a spyglass but we but we just didn't have the time to show her entire process of making it and why she made it and actually how refraction the thing and what she'd have to do and honing the lenses and how she fitted it and failed because we had ones of of the we'd created spyglasses of the journey you'd go through to make one work but it was so elongated to actually go through the science of making it work that is just picking up a lens that basically created a, a kind of, you know, uh, improved your uh, kind of, you know, your vision. And basically with the oil, you could really understand what's going on. Um, so it was a it was an interesting journey uh, across the whole of the meletha world because we were trying to talk about a culture that had a huge amount of humanity in their culture. They... Um, they they speak and feel and love and emote and all this stuff. And there could be so much more around them if it, if we had a whole season of, uh, of dark materials based on them, you know.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. There's only so much time and it is such a bananas book to pack into eight episodes. Um, and speaking of kind of say, so like, there's so much complexity that you did manage to pack into the malefa world and it's so, like, rich and full of nature and stuff. By quite stark contrast, we could take a little look at the Clouded Mountain, which is such a minimal but grand design. Um, And we've had quite a few questions about specifically the Clouded Mountain and the Abyss and how you approached um, those designs for those concepts because they are so much different from everything else we've seen in the series and in the books. How did you approach that? Because it's so abstract.
2: So so the... the, uh... I think the way that my brain tried to assess it was that the easy path was a path that a fantasy project might take to place it in a kind of stone columned, you know, Greek, Roman, uh, um, medieval, you know, give it this kind of uh, kind of weight and like, kind of real sense of 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 uh, reality which is one thing you could do but i but i realized that actually if what we're saying is that the authority is the inspiration by behind every world's own version of it then they would have basically been inspired by their visions of this so they would have seen for our cathedrals and our halls of power would have somehow had a vision of what this place might be, and they would have interpreted that vision into all of the things that all these worlds had as an interpretive version of what they are, if that makes sense. So they're the, they're the kind of centre point of every other culture and world's interpretation of that. And if you did that, you can't make it specifically anything because it has to be what people see and want to interpret it as. So, the Magisterium have these huge columns and and also I think with um you know and 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 you could uh put it into different types of authoritative uh contexts and religious contexts but which are about authority and and ultimately um you could say oh, that 's a bit like the magisterium's or the that place is a bit like this clouded mountain, but actually the clouded mountain was the place that began before all of it and well, theoretically would have stood and stayed strong. After all of it had gone to dust, um, and, and ultimately it was the it, everything that came to all the worlds was modelled in its likeness, and its likeness was what was forging ahead all of the behaviour that it was for you know trying to force forward. So it was actually weirdly when so what, when you then when you then think that way, you have to take everything away. You have to like be really sparing, sparing about it, and have it almost be a fabric of your mind, the halls of power, which is what it, what it was. And I think Philip, we discussed this, and Philip always saw it as a kind of the halls of authority, the many, many hallways and pathways and, and relentless kind of um, bureaucracy and halls of, of bureaucracy. And that that's what the, the Clouded Mountain was to him. Um, it's where, you know, this all-powerful body sits and presides over everyone else um and it's bureaucracy basically you know projecting down and stopping everyone from from um doing some of the things it doesn't want them to do in all the worlds so really if it relate if it if it looked like if you look at the wide shot it's almost again it's kind of got all this glistening things like it's it's quite hard to define. It would move around, and the idea would be it could it could manoeuvre itself into different, slightly different shapes, um, and it, and actually, um, but if you if you want to really dig into it, it couldn't be anything specific, because if it was anything specific, it would remind you of something on our Earth, but everything on our Earth has to remind you of it. So it's a complicated, <laughs> it was a complicated thing to do, really. For Russell and I, it was deeply like mind for something that looks quite simple. Mm. It was quite a big like journey.
0: Yeah, that sounds it. <laughs> um, I guess on a on a similar vein, if we're talking about Clouded Mountain, etc., we had a really interesting question from one of our listeners called Leanne, who said, um, "So, with the process of designing the Magisterium and the aesthetic of the Magisterium, did you feel any pressure to?" Uh, avoid overtly referencing things like the Catholic Church because you can see the influence of it but it never feels too on the nose
2: We, we basically knew that we were dealing with a kind of culture uh, that wasn't ours but much like ours in the books, in Lyra's world and therefore um, we never felt that we were and we never wanted to do, go directly uh, to religion or specific religions to um to kind of but but there are aspects which are sit, sit, seated within it that that drive you there um but it was it was kind of a weird one um we just tried to stay faithful to the books so we weren't we were we tried to avoid um symbolism vi- too much symbolism i know that there's a chapel with adam and eve and, and adam and eve plays a huge part of, of the story with will and lyra so we we fell into uh, that and enjoyed creating that 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 space. Um, it was a beautiful thing to do, and it, it created a, a it, in itself. It was an amazing space to stand in because it it echoed and it was quite um, interesting. It was like really weird to stand in there. Um, but basically, we didn't go out of our way to try and be on the nose with. Uh, religion i think once we set on a symbol which was the symbol for the magisterium we launched off everything in design from that symbol uh which made life a bit easier because everywhere is that symbol and everything has got that symbol on it and actually it's like it's their version of authority and in fact um countries uh sects you know different you know um governments um companies have flags, you know, you name it, everyone has a symbol. And, um, and actually, uh, it's not just religion. So in lots of ways, it was a symbol of authority, the magisterium symbol that bled out. Um, and, and I guess that was it, really. We, we weren't afraid of, of, of religion, but, but we weren't really trying to make comment on religion in our world, ever. Uh, it it was never something that we were um, tasked to do. We were in Lyra's world and we were in a good ways world. And we were in other places where Azrael had fought and struggled to, we heard about places where the authority had 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 an impact, you know, and it was, it wasn't, um, and it it would have been impacted in all different ways um, in different worlds.
1: That makes so much sense. I love that. Um, we know how complex a lot of the sets that you've made were and one of our favorite things in the second season was going back and re-watching a lot of the Chittagazzi scenes and a lot of the scenes after speaking with you and hearing about the details that were in there and kind of the easter eggs that were hidden in there like the, the angels in the architecture literally um is there anything that you would uh like for us to keep an eye out for on our re-watches of season three that are like lovely little sneaky easter eggs that you've Hidden in the details of the scenery that we need to look out for, like we know that we've got all the beautiful objects to in the walls of the world of the dead and in the in the fabric of the world of the dead. But is there anything that you want us to keep an eye out for?
2: <laughs> well, the Magisterium is the place where it's we've been naughty. <laughs> do you know Do you know about this?
0: No, no. Uh,
2: so on the wall in the Magisterium, there's a big freeze which you. Uh, which when Macphail walks through, uh, it's a huge stone kind of relief uh, that's an ancient relief. The whole idea really of that chapel is that that chapel was the first place that someone saw the authority in my head, and it was like the holiest of holy place on a mound in Geneva. And basically around that were the relics that they put into this museum around it and built this concrete um kind of compound that grew and grew and it was the spiritual home and the kind of real um seat of power of the magisterium it was where it all began and that's why father MacPhail has that chapel but around the chapel are lots of bits and bobs and one of the freezes is very funny because dan mcculloch who's a producer that i worked with from 26 17 um with good friends and i and uh i had his face sculpted at the beginning as a young man, at the end as an old man with a beard. Um, and then in the middle was Jack Thorne with a pair of jaunty underpants and Philip Pullman and Jane Tranter with the wolf demon and me going like, you know, all this stuff. And it's all sculpted into the walls. It's all sculpted into this huge frieze. It's literally Chocker block with ridiculous <laughs> but very serious-looking Easter eggs. I mean, you wouldn't know there are Easter eggs, but like...
1: Oh, we're going to have to find out. We're going to have to get a good screenshot. Yeah, I think if you ask um,
2: uh, uh, Ian and the team, you know, they've probably got photographs of all of this.
1: Well, we have had questions, but I think a few different people have asked us actually that we need to ask you and anyone that we speak to that is uh, embroiled in the process, what are the chances? Because we know there's so much work and you've mentioned all these sketches, all this art that's gone into the process that we don't see... Because it doesn't make it to the screen, or because you know the path goes a different way. What are the chances of us getting a *His Dark Materials: The Making of* art book ever?
2: <laughs> um, uh, well, I've got enough stuff. Do we need uh, to rally
1: the community behind it?
2: <laughs> I mean, I never. It's really weird because uh, the *Black Mirror* book that was made, that I was a huge part of, like helping put together, was made while I was on *Dark, uh, Dark Materials* because it took so long. <laughs> To, for them to kind of go, let's do a Black Mirror book. So, um, I'd love to think that we can do that. Um, I'll nudge, I'll nudge yeah, the team definitely. <laughs> um, because it is. I mean, it would be very fun. There's, we've got funny. We've got such a weight of stuff, and the thing is, like all of this, you know, sometimes people want to see the failures as well as the successes, um, and they want to see what we tried and what we what we sat settled settled or, or went with. Uh, what what worked and, and um, other things that were like really silly, um, so yeah a book a book a uh, a thick tome would be a fun. Proper
1: a proper coffee table art book just packed full of his dark materials nerdery is what all of us want. So yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe I'll just I'll just I'll just do it myself.
0: Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For you, we've obviously talked about. So many things this season, so many new things. Um, What was the most challenging aspect of it for you? Like, if you had to pick one part of season three that, you know, was the most difficult or the most personally challenging, what would you go for?
2: I would say um, holding myself back to not do what instinctively would have been easier to do visually for the Clouded Mountain but what I knew would be, in the long term, um, always, no matter which way I turned, tell the wrong story. So I suppose the hardest thing, and I think if you ask Russell, both of us would say, because by season three, we knew that we could do creatures, although that was eye-wateringly complicated to do creatures that talked and looked good. Uh, we had already worked out that that's something we did. You know, that, that we'd already broken that mold and, and uh, we'd already broken, broken ground there and, and actually felt uh, like uh, with the right processes and attitude we could deliver. Uh, but actually making heaven and hell is like, I guess it's like, you know, if, I used to say if someone asked me to make a spaceship, I'd be like, oh, no, please, because everybody's made a thousand spaceships. Where do you start? How do you be original? Where do you you begin with a spaceship? Like, you know, this one, that one, this one, billions of them, like that. So you're like, oh, it's one of those briefs you like, but you still get asked and you still have to do it constantly and it's fine and it's fun and trying to be original with that. Whereas trying to make heaven and hell, it's tough. And and I'd say that was the hardest. They were the hardest briefs across the three seasons. And I think Russell and I uh, would both say that, Trying to do it uh, when you know instinctively, you know, you could make it easier on yourself by doing something different, but actually it's it's a tough, it was a really tough thing to do. Heaven and or hell. But you can see why. I mean, like, you know, because it's actually about how you think versus what you see. It's about emotion and not about spectacle. Uh, uh, and, and how do you how do you dig deep enough to try and think constantly just only about the emotion and not the spectacle, when the spectacle also matters hugely? Does that make sense? Does that kind of sound like yes, circular craziness? But but it is it is a they're they're they're, they're two very hard places to like to journey into, and both of them are intertwined because heaven is hell and hell is heaven and none of it makes any sense and. You know, there's good in, in, in bad and bad in good and good and that's the thing, it's um that's part of this whole story, you know? About where um good and evil sits and um yeah. And humanity. It's tough.
1: Very right.
2: I just had a lot of cappuccinos.
1: So that was your most difficult challenge, I guess, this season. Could you give us, now that we're at the end, at the end of all three seasons, and you can kind of look back retrospectively at everything, have you got like a top three favourite aspects of the project that you've worked on, top three favourite bits, and also a top three favourite bits that when they finally made it to the screen that made you go, yes.
2: Top moment one was um, when um, when we basically kind of got the green light. Because we've been working on the show as a group, a few of us, for, um, you know, months and five, six months or more, seven months more. And I think when we got the kind of full go, 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 hang on, but we're not, you know, you never really in in TV, you never, you know, you go, but you kind of go, but you almost go. And then you're going and then you've done it and then you still go and it never stops. Um, But that moment where we're like, this is it, we're off um was moment one because it was utterly brilliant um i think uh knowing that i was going to be able to make Chidigarsi and making Chidigarsi was uh moment two uh because to be honest it's one of those rare things in a career that you get to do which is to completely create and invent and be as it were as a writer i, I as a novelist you see you're you're you are god you know you can kill people and give birth to people and tell people to move there you can take you can send them over there and bring them back to you and you do what you want you've written it you can move everything around the chess pieces uh whereas when you're working with the constraints of those stories those chess pieces those the the bigger picture of those stories have already been set whereas when you're building a town you're back to being god oh it is so much fun you know like it like we talked about before what are the bricks like you know uh, what everything? What do people eat? You know, like it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a very freeing bit of fun. And the third bit uh, was, I think, seeing every time we saw the creatures um, come to life, uh, having worked tirelessly for the years on each season, and we finally got them into the. We went through because we went through as a group all the VFX reviews and the processes and did everything together. Uh, but we finally got them in, and the amazing work kind of connected to the amazing work, as it were, and, and it all kind of went together seamlessly. That was moment three. Like, it makes you feel so good that you can feel that proud that something, you know, it, that feeling of, like, I can't even believe we did that, you know? Like, all of that, six years worth of work, and you look at it, you, sometimes I look at it, and I'm like, I can't even believe we managed to do it. You know, we were told in 2017 it was impossible. Um, and so when someone, when people are telling you it's impossible, every time you do it, you're thinking, God, that's brilliant. Thank God we did that. Because all you remember is that there's people trying to tell you it wasn't possible, you know.
0: Do, um, do you have a, a top three moments? Just if you're watching the season as a fan like we were, uh, do you have a top three moments of... of- what happened during the season? Or I would on say
2: screen? I think Roger's death, um, Lyra's separation from Pan, and the end where they sit at the bench.
1: So the heartbreakers, oh, then all the heartbreakers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the
2: heartbreakers, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what you've got. That you you tell you creating a story to deliver on those moments, you know, and um, and those moments turn the story left and right and take your emotions with them. So yeah, it there, there has to be those moments.
0: Um, before we let you go, I, um... We would love to ask. Obviously, this, this this season, there's just so much happening. Is there anything that you want to share that we haven't asked you about? Uh, any particular location or prop or anything that you're particularly proud of that we haven't
1: touched on?
2: Um, oh God, you know the problem is it's always uh, like if I went through my pictures, I'd be like, oh God, there. Like, let me just hang on, give me a minute.
1: This is why we need the art book.
2: <laughs> well, there were some amazing things we 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 did. Um, the thing that that I take with me across all of it was the sense of what the odd, what the sense of what the crew felt in and out of these spaces. So did you have a visit? Did you we visit Chittagartse? No. got in the
1: way, sadly. We didn't.
2: <laughs> so there was something really lovely about, about when, you know, I'd find people having a coffee and, you know, like sitting there having a breakfast on the square of Chittagartse. And it was very funny. And when the crew got pulled away and ended up going to Borel's basement, um, which was full of, like, fun bits. It was literally full of trinkets, but they were all pretty suspect, you know? Skulls and weird things and, you know, bits of the Titanic and stuff from disasters and things that were, like, hard to get hold of that, that Boreal had managed to get his, his kind of thieving hands on. And, and basically uh, the atmosphere there was very dark and um, very weird. And the crew all went very weird. Uh, they all found it very, very upsetting, and i I was like, "Oh, this is really interesting. They were all being quite impacted as it were by the environmental nature of the space, like the like the land of the dead you know you'd you'd go to a place that was full of hope and everyone would be like relatively upbeat, and you'd go to a place that was dark, and everyone would be like oh like that would grind and it would be like so that was fun, uh and weird um the Malefa tree was an insane thing if you came to see the Malefa tree on set, it literally rammed a humongous stage, completely full of a ridiculously sized route. Um, and you kind of hear yourself standing in a meeting talking about a route you're about to build, which is like, I don't know, 200 foot, whatever. It's like insanely huge. And, and you just think, what are we doing? But, and then beyond, I, don't, I, I kind of need to, probably that's where me, Russell and I will prompt each other to remember some of the bonkersness that we've, that we've been through because I just scroll through my images. The problem is I saw everything uh, and some things some things that you, no one ever saw, which I'd love to put in the book, that didn't make the screen, uh, that are very funny from season one. Some moments, as it were. Um, but uh, maybe we do that on the next one.
1: I would love that. Yeah. Well, I guess our last wrap-up thing was just because we know everybody loves your work so much, is what are you working on next? But we might have had the answer to that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I'm well, currently, um, since while do, while completing Dark Materials throughout the year, which has been every week doing the reviews and the VFX and all the complexity of the VFX design, I've been uh, an exec producer on the new Russell T. Davis Doctor Who. Uh, and it's a very complicated, big, new, exciting space.
1: Amazing. <laughs> well, everybody tune into that for the same excellent energy that we've had from his. dark great <laughs> we know excited. we've got some dr who nerds in the fan base as well we know it
2: <laughs> yeah it's terrifying so a, a, i mean that, that's a big fan base <laughs> that's got an int- a, a, a great, you know very big mm-hmm. fan base so, so it's gonna yeah, it's an interesting for sure. change for me from dark materials to you know to dr who it's all exciting mm-hmm
0: yeah definitely well thank you so much for joining us joel we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us thank you thank you and we'll get we'll get you and russell on for sure and we'll do it we'll do a round (laughs) table chat we will come on
2: get us together we love it
0: we will
1: (laughs) okay thank you so much thank you so so much it's a real
0: pleasure (laughs)
1: that was so much fun thank you so much joel
0: <laughs> yes thank you joel that was so great absolutely loved speaking to you oh just learning all about this stuff it's just so great it's one of my favorite things that we do to be able to like pick apart the tv series when we go through our episodes and then be able to ask people all the questions that we asked each other when we were watching it oh i just love it
1: mm-hmm. it's so, i say i love our job <gasps> it's Me not too. even a real job but it is, and I mean, it's great. I love that we get to speak to the people that made the thing that we love. Um, yeah, yeah. This is this is uh, just just amazing. If I could steal anybody's job on the program, would it be Joel's? It would be whoever works with Joel to actually mm. make the things. Yeah, <laughs> because I don't. I do not envy his position because there is so much decision making and thinking things through, and the pressure to get it right is huge. But I want to be. On the sidelines to watching how his brain works and seeing those decisions get made, and then making the things that sounds, yeah. Just Joel, can can I please have a job for you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, we could probably make that happen. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) but yeah, it was great, and it was lovely to talk to Joel. And we've done so many interviews, and we're not sure when we're going to release them all. So this it will probably be in amongst a bunch of interviews that we've done. Mm -hmm. So we hope you're enjoying them so far. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of HerDot Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod and you can email us at HerDotMaterialsPod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at HDMPod.co.uk
0: if you want to support us you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod we also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from rich you can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop i'm fair and when i'm not talking to joel you can find me talking about paramore on my other podcast still into you you can listen wherever you get your podcasts and find us on twitter and instagram at still into you pod
1: i'm rachel and when i'm not here chatting to joel about all the amazing art on his dark materials i'm making cute and magical arty things you can find me over on instagram at rachemakes on twitter and tiktok at rach underscore makes and over in my online shop A huge thanks as always to johnny knott for his musical stylings and an even bigger thank you to joel collins for taking time to answer our questions today and we'll see you soon and don't forget keep telling stories and all will be well